Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. The following podcast includes explicit language, including, well, you'll just have to wait and see. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of March 22nd, 2021. On this week's show, we're going to talk about Loyola Chicago's big upset, Oral Roberts' bigger upsets, Paige Beckers' big debut, and the other large storylines from the opening weekend of March Madness. We'll also discuss how Oregon's Sedona Prince used social media to expose the inequalities between the men's and women's tournaments. And author Jessica Luther will join us for a conversation about the assault lawsuits against Houston Texans quarterback Deshaun Watson. I'm in Washington, D.C. I'm the author of The Queen, host of Slow Burn Season 4 on David Duke. Also in D.C., Stefan Fatsis. He is the author of the book's Word Freak in a Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Hello, Josh. What's your hat? My hat is the San Francisco Seals. Really? Baseball team, yeah. Pacific Coast League. Pacific Coast League, yeah. That's pretty cool. I'm a big fan of that. Yeah, I like the seal. It's an orange seal on a navy hat. Love it. There should be more marine mammal mascots. I think we can all agree. Agree. Also with us, Slate staff writer, host of the upcoming Slow Burn Season 6, and the award-winning Slow Burn Season 3. Award-winning! Destroyed all comers, earned a 2021 Writers Guild Award. Slade's own Joel Anderson. Congrats, Joel. Also, congrats to Christopher Johnson, our beloved former colleague. Yeah, I, you know, much like a uh, an athlete interviewed after you know a winning touchdown or something. I just want to credit my offensive line. I mean, Josh is part of <laughs> Josh is part of the offensive line. Christopher's part of the offensive line. Gabe is. It's a team award, but it's very cool. Yeah, I'm really excited. It got announced by the Hollywood there? Reporter. Talk about talk about your emotions. Well, you know, I mean, you just work really hard. You know, all season. You know, you work really hard. And, you know, this is what you're building for at the end of the year, you know, the, the big the big game. And then to come through, I mean, it just, you know, verifies everything coach has been telling us all year. You know, you just keep your head down, work hard, and good things will happen. So, really excited about that. And to be clear, this was for one episode of Slow Burn or the yes. whole series? It, it was, yeah, just unfortunately just one episode. But there was... Uh, yeah, the rest of the episodes weren't that good. <laughs> they don't know, we don't one. know yeah, what they think. I just want to let seven. listeners know yeah. which episode <laughs> they should listen to. The award-winning right. one, not no, the other it, ones. Yeah. It, 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 it was episode four of season three, uh, which is about C. Dolores Tucker and Bill Bennett and their crusade against, you know, the filth of gangster rap, um, the Great scourge episode. of gangster rap. So, yeah, it was a lot of fun. That was one of the ones I'd wanted to do when I won- when uh, that season came up. So it was awesome, man. I'm really excited. But like I told you all last night, Bob Beeman put a gold medal around my neck when I was 10 years old, man. So it's kind of hard to come up from that after that happens. <laughs> On that... Note, let us transition to a whole bunch of uh, other winners. So the NCAA has a lot of problems. We'll get to those in a minute. Let's start with what works. The NCAA tournament, the games, the teams, the players, the TV show. When it works, it works. And it pretty much always works. In the first octet of second round games on Sunday, 
Four games were decided by three points or less, three double-digit seeds, Syracuse, Oregon State, and number 15 seed, Oral Roberts, advanced to the Sweet 16. Eight seed Loyola Chicago also dominated one of the tourney favorites, one seed Illinois, bringing back memories of the Ramblers' non-fueled Final Four run of a few years back. In the opening round of the women's tournament, San Antonio, UConn's freshman sensation Paige Beckers made her March Madness debut. Statline of 24 points, nine rebounds, six assists, and one monster pack. Yeah. big win over high point. Joel, I won't force you to talk about I know you love packs, but we, we yeah, can Yeah, I would love to, to talk later. about it if we can get into it. Was that was very good, though, Josh. We'll you know what you've done there, Josh? You have now legitimized yeah. pack. You've put it in the mainstream. Main, it's a major national publication. There it is in context without being glossed or defined. Maybe someday, Joel, it'll get the, the recognition it deserves. That's what I'm hoping here. It's all teamwork, like we talked about earlier. But we're getting sidetracked, Joel. I know you want to talk about the valiant efforts by the plucky <laughs> Texas Longhorns oh, man. and the Rutgers Scarlet Knights. Both losers this weekend, but both um, just gave a, a real strong effort, and we should be proud of them for that. Yeah, I mean, how about the University of Texas, the only team from Texas to not win a game in the, the men's tournament? You know, you have to love that. I don't know. Somebody should reach out and tell us if the players had to stand and sing the, the alma mater eyes of Texas after they lost to Abilene Christian on that floor in Indianapolis. If somebody knows, I'd, like, I'd love to know it. But man, so yes, Texas lost. But that was a terrible basketball game. Did oh. you all watch that? It was yes. a terrible, like aesthetically and otherwise. It was. It, it reminded me of like one of those football games where a lesser talented team, like let's just say Rice or Georgia Tech, Georgia Tech in the in the, in the, in the aughts, where they just hold the ball and force turnovers and basically run out the clock. Uh, like ACU shot, it took sixty seven shots. Texas took forty, and that's because ACU turned over Texas a season high twenty three times, which is sort of like hitting every other car on the freeway. You know what I mean? Like if you, you turn over twenty three <laughs> times, like you just that's a bumper car's offense you're running out there. I like how uh, Georgia Tech just got strafed in there for absolutely no, no reason. reason at just all. Like, no, no yeah. reason to bring them into it. But Abilene Christian first team ever in the tournament to win despite shooting less than 30% from the field and under 20% yeah. from three. But really, Josh, to be fair, just just under 30%, 29.9%. 29.9%, from three. Yeah, I guess to broaden out a little bit, you know, there are just different kinds of March Madness upsets, you know, compared to Oral Roberts, and we can talk about that institution in a bit, but just as a team, just entertaining and you know a couple of stars max Smith and kevin o'banner and the team was just like a, a joy to watch and a deserving winner even if you're talking about aesthetics they, they deserve to win because they just uh were were fun to watch and played a pleasing style whereas abilene christian all credit well maybe maybe not all credit but just like a total slog and and kind of uh, I actually resented the money at the end despite the fact that we we generally well, like underdogs. Wait, wait, Josh, hold on. Do you don't you want to you didn't want to see Joe Pleasant that uh, 58% free throw shooter on a free throw line like miss like even if you even if you wanted Texas to win, you didn't want that guy to miss those free throws in that spot, right? Yeah, I mean, I guess if you drill down that specifically, then yes, I was not rooting for him to miss the free throws, but but he was likely to. I just, 
I, yeah, I felt, right. He was. <laughs> I felt victimized by that game. That's, yeah. what, I'm, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. But I think if you're looking for some absolution or explanation, I mean, this was just such a messed up season. I don't think any of these outcomes or any of the performances should be especially surprising. I mean, Virginia losing to Ohio in the first round. Virginia didn't practice for a week before the tournament because of COVID after it had to withdraw from the ACC tournament. Um, I mean, long stretches of other games were unwatchable, too. I mean, it wasn't just Texas and Abilene Christian. Rutgers and Houston had some really lame stretches and an exciting hey, finish. Hey, that was exciting from start that's, to finish. Stefan, that's college basketball. I mean, Iona, like, Alabama was also really bad. Stephen, yeah, that's college basketball, Stephen, but some it's of like, these it's games like you're, were... It's like you're watching a college football game and a kicker misses, and you're like, oh, that's because of the, the pandemic. I mean, come on. I mean... You kind of you're, you're exaggerating a little bit here. <laughs> maybe, you know? but maybe I'm projecting a little bit wait, too. Wait, that wait, I'm wait, expecting wait. I'm expecting this tournament to not be as good, and no, I'm Stephen. also expecting that the best teams are not as good as we might think they are. I mean, Loyola kicked Illinois' ass up and down the court. That was not an upset at all. And I don't know what the explanation for that is underrating Loyola, um, Illinois having an off day, nobody having a normal season. But I think the one thing that we should expect from this tournament is that there really aren't a lot of upsets per se because this has been such a weird season. Well, I think, I think Josh and Stefan, you both are right in that that is just college basketball and this was particularly bad basketball. But the reason it's so shocking is because this is their – you know, their centerpiece. This is what we're building towards all year long, and the quality of the ball is bad. These are theoretically most of the best teams in the country. The quality of the ball is bad, and nobody is hardly watching college basketball during the regular season anymore. There's just not the buildup to regular season games. So by the time you finally get around to watching college basketball, you're like, oh, they're a bunch of six foot eight centers who can't finish at the rim. Like, you know, that you just realize, like, oh, like this is what college basketball is now in 2021. So, yeah, like, I mean, I think that you're right, Stefan, in that there's a lot more variance in the outcomes because these teams aren't great. You know, there's very few. Like, maybe there's two great teams that we can identify, Gonzaga and, and Baylor. Mm-hmm. But, like, most of these teams are limited in terms of their talented. They're not nearly as many, like, in an NBA caliber players on these two on on either side of the floor in any game. And so yeah, like you're just going to have a game where, you know, Abilene Christian has a 5 foot, you know, a 6 foot 140 pound point guard whose career high is 9 points and he leads them to victory. You know what I mean? Like it's just that kind of random stuff cuz there's no there's not the Kevin Durant's or, you know, or even the Derek Coleman's and Purvis Ellison's of the past, you know? Purvis Ellison. Yeah, it's not the out, right? Y'all remember Purvis Ellison? That's uh, pack-era basketball. Is winning with (laughs) random, out-of-nowhere references here. I think think both of you guys are wrong to be the opposite of generous and in spirit. Stefan's, like, going to retroactively say that UMBC beat Virginia because of the pandemic. I mean, like, (laughs) you can... can, I, I think... It's in the name. Like, what is the one thing we know about the NCAA tournament? It's just, like, weird stuff happens. And saying that, like, oh, there are unexpected results in March Madness. Uh, what a what a shocker. I've never seen that before. It's just kind of a weird take to me. But Loyola Chicago, they have the number one defense in the country. Right. Like, according to mm-hmm. Ken Palm, they're, like, a top 10 team. And the thing that I found watching them and remembering their Final Four from a few years ago, this team is just better. Like, that team from from back then, they didn't have to beat a number one seed. They had, like, a fairly 
easy path to the Final Four, and they're winning all these games on buzzer beaters. This team is like very solid. They've played together for a while. They've got uh, Cameron Crutwig, who is a freshman on that Final Four team, who uh, looks like he's going to have <laughs> like a fine career in the insurance field or, or something else. <laughs> and that kind of connects to what you were saying, Joel, about like the six-foot point guard for Aveline Christian. Like the thing that I actually love about college basketball and about the tournament is that it's like a celebration of different kinds of body types. <laughs> like you have these big and mobile centers, um, whether it's like Luca Garza or Kofi Coburn for um, Illinois. Illinois, who like wouldn't be able to be on the floor in the NBA and are actually like huge forces in college basketball. And I feel like the NBA has never been better in terms of a collection of talent and skill. But like every player is like a six eight bouncy wing guy. Like ev- it's all converging on everyone being the same, and that is like the fun and the magic of college basketball is that you can see this like bizarre kind of agglomeration of skills and talents that like don't really make that much sense if you just watch the NBA. It's like from you know decades ago. The the likely number one pick in the NBA draft. Is not in the tournament anymore, Cade Ugh. Cunningham in Oklahoma State. The only watchable player, really, to be, for, I mean, to be honest, in terms of like, if you like the NBA, Cade Cunningham not being in the tournament is a bad thing because, like, that's a guy that's actually enjoyable to watch, even though he did quite seem like it last night. But, you know, yeah, I mean, that's, that can't be a good thing. It's, it's not like when Zion went out before the Final Four, but it's like one of those things that, like, oh, the NCAA could really have used Cade Cunningham in another round or two, right? He didn't look that great in that game. I mean, I've, he, he made a bunch of threes, but it's not like he... March Madness is like this. I use this example all the damn time, and just bear with me. Do you guys remember John Ruiz, the old heavyweight boxing champ from like the, the early 2000s? Like he beat, like I can't remember if he beat like Riddick Bowe or, or like... He definitely beat Evander Holyfield at the end of his career. John Ruiz was not a good boxer. But he made everybody look ugly. Like, he could just make every fight look ugly and, like, bring you down just by virtue of the competition. That is what it's like for Cade Cunningham to play in college basketball. Like, it's a bunch of John Ruiz's slowing him down, <laughs> stifling his talent, not allowing anybody else to, like, shine because it's just a morass of bad basketball. And I'm not, like, I know that Who if I would... I more surprised listening to the show to hear them uh, themselves reference John Ruiz or Purvis Ellison? <laughs> Probably John Ruiz, I would say. I'm trying to bring in the kids for the younger generations of sports fans. I wasn't wasn't expecting all this negativity. Like, I watched a bunch of Mm. tournament basketball, and I found it to be totally delightful. Mm. I mean, yeah, yeah, it was, if you like competitive basketball and you like close games, then yeah, the NCAA tournament is great. But if you like good basketball, like if you like good basketball, then it's not good for that. But if you just like laundry and storylines and close games, then yeah, March Madness is great. Right. So let, let's let's break down the Houston Rutgers game a little bit more. Yeah, let's do that. Go Cougs. Uh, Rutgers is ahead by 10 with, um, mm-hmm. what, about four minutes to go, five minutes to go in the game, uh, mm-hmm. maybe a little bit more. Houston ends the game on a 14-2 to two run. I'd like to give Houston a lot of credit for their brilliant <laughs> play down the stretch. 
but this was a complete gag job. And yes, Josh, it was incredibly entertaining to watch, but there was a part of me, because it was close and it was exciting and you didn't know who was going to win, but there was a part of me that was just like sinking that pit in your stomach, feeling terrible for the team that is just blowing this game. Yes, my entertainment, but man, that was painful to watch. Um, And poor Ron Harper's kid missing the last shot to tie the game was also sad. Maybe I'm just I, too. Maybe I'm just too I, I empathetic these feel, days. I, I didn't you didn't feel, feel that, that at Rutgers. all. No. Oh yeah, I didn't feel bad for Rutgers. I, I, you know, I, obviously, I didn't feel bad for Rutgers. I mean, institutionally, it's hard to feel bad for Rutgers. I mean, if you look at their basketball, you know, their recent basketball coaching tree oh, is, is, yeah, is right. not uh, the most uh, not not the most Price, uh, that's right. uplifting. Yeah, they had yeah. the guy and uh, what was it, Kevin Bannon? who was fired for making players and managers run naked sprints after a, a free throw contest back in, uh, or was that, 1997? Oh, then so there, was the guy, there was the guy that yelled at everybody. What? Wow, that was going on in 1997? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Why, did you have to do that in sports? No. Okay, I, mean, <laughs> I mean, we did things that, uh, I mean, it was definitely the olden days. It was, I've, I've, practiced, I've been in sports long enough that you couldn't drink water during practice because that was a sign yeah. of weakness. But I forgot about this guy at Rutgers in 2010. Profanity laced tirade directed at Pittsburgh coaches at a Rutgers <laughs> baseball game. Yeah, that's why you get Kelvin Sampson to come in and clean it up. You know, that's the that's the guy you want representing the NCAA and you know basketball. You know, you get that guy in there and you get that University of Houston program back on the map. And that's exactly the sort of story that the NCAA should want. You know? But I will, I will say this, uh, Joel, you know, this felt to me, that game was very NC State 1983 when NC State came back in the last minutes to beat Pepperdine in the first round and then won mm-hmm. in double overtime. And then they beat UNLV in the second round by one point and Virginia in the Elite Eight by one point. So good omen, I think, for your, your Cougars, Joel. Nothing will ever make up for... What Lorenzo Charles rocked on my childhood. Well, that's why I mentioned 1983. Also, it's sort of this would be the redemption. Yeah, that you but might this need. is nice. This is nice. This is the fifth time in school history they've made it to the Sweet 16, and like we're going to talk about it later in this uh, episode. But Houston sports fans could use a good story right now, don't you think? Like this is a good time for Houston to have something good happen among one of its uh, sports institutions. So uh, if, even, if, even if it all falls, falls apart in the next round, at least we had this moment. A couple of players who uh, caught my attention over the weekend. Stefan, you mentioned Ohio beating UVA. And there's a guy, Jason Preston, who's the point guard for Ohio, averaged two points <laughs> as a high school senior, went to uh, University of Central Florida and was going to play intramurals. And then by like some very kind of like convoluted uh, circumstance, ended up going to prep school, ended up getting recruited, ended up going to Ohio, and is now like one of the leaders and assists in the nation and plays like a very aesthetically pleasing style of ball. Even people who are like incredibly, strangely like sour about the NCAA tournament and think nobody is good. If you watch Jason <laughs> Preston, you'll be oh. very entertained. He's a very good player. You left um, out, then, wait, wait, wait. You left out two of my favorite details about Jason Preston. One is that he had to cut his own highlight reel and sort of gin it together with a couple of buddies because he really didn't have much tape. And the second was that he was he he, he had you know he was thinking he wasn't going to play in college, so he was uh, he was thinking about going into journalism and was blogging for Fansided about the Detroit Pistons. What? He chose a better career. The other 
player that caught my attention is Buddy Beheim, who mm. is apparently like the greatest shooter of all time. Like if you would have told me that Jim Beheim's son, who is a former walk-on named Buddy, is going to be the best player on the Syracuse team, I would not have predicted that, that he would like lead them to glory in the Sweet 16 by just raining threes on dudes. Would you have predicted that 76-year-old Jim Beheim would have, still have a son in college? Like, that, that was the thing I that I was that, like, I thought, I thought that time was over. I, was, I, did like, know I didn't know that he was still having children. I did know that he had a young wife, so that, that didn't shock me. But, like, Skippy Shashevsky. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there was a Brad Calipari at one point. I do remember that. Well, remember, there was also, uh, didn't... Uh, Tubby Smith, then uh, his son Shape was oh, yeah, it Saul Smith. Smith. Sm- Saul Smith, yeah, right. Yeah, so he was on a- that. He was on that Kentucky squad. Yeah, just the delights of March Madness. On this week's bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to talk about the NFL's new hundred billion dollar plus TV deal, what it says about the future of sports rights negotiations. Hear us have that conversation. You need to be a Slate Plus member. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangout plus. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. I got something to show y'all. So for the NCAA March Madness, the biggest tournament in college basketball for women, this is our weight room. Let me show y'all the men's weight room. Now, when pictures of our weight room got released versus the men's, the NCAA came out with a statement saying that it wasn't money, it was space that was a problem. Let me show y'all something else. Here's our practice court, right? And then here's that weight room. And then here's all this extra space. If you aren't upset about this problem, then you're a part of it. That, of course, was Sedona Prince of the University of Oregon, pointing out the discrepancies in the weight training facilities between the men's and women's tournaments. The men are playing in Indiana, the women are playing in Texas. And what was really incredible about that is, I mean, that was a rack of weights that you would have in your basement. Apparently Hmm. the heaviest uh, dumbbell was a 30-pounder. And the assumptions that are baked into whoever made the decision to order that one piece of equipment for the women that are practicing there to take turns using was remarkable. The great news is that what happened here is reflective of the power of social media and the power of women's voices and the power of NCAA athletes taking charge of their situations. That TikTok, that video had 16.8 million views on TikTok. And a follow-up video after the NCAA capitulated and equipped that room, that space with actual weights has almost 5 million views. Chuck Schumer, the senator, tweeted, this is outrageous, NCAA, it needs to be fixed now. 
And Sedona Prince, Josh, is a, a great spokesperson for this. She has 700,000 followers on TikTok, and she has a very prominent platform because of her role in suing the NCAA over name, image, and likeness rights. Yeah, she got hurt. She had a leg injury. She transferred from University of Texas, just another kind of devastating blow to that school um, that Sedona <laughs> Prince left there, and was forced to sit out because of transfer rules fans at her new school, Oregon, wanted to sell t-shirts that said free Sedona and asked if she wanted to sell them. And she wasn't allowed because of um, the current NCAA rules that ban athletes from profiting off of their own names, images, and likenesses. And so there's just a bunch of things going on here. There's the stuff that she pointed out about the unfairness and inequality in the way that women athletes and and men athletes are, are treated during these parallel tournaments that are happening at the exact same time. And then there's the popularity of this video, which has revealed that athletes like Sedona Prince, if they were able to, quote-unquote, exploit their names, images, and likenesses, could really profit and benefit. And especially women athletes. I mean, when I, I mentioned Paige Beckers briefly earlier in the show, but... She has way more Instagram followers, you know, 600,000 than any of the like top male college basketball players. She could be making a mint right now. And so these restrictions, Joel, that the NCAA imposes on athletes, I think maybe the popular view is like, oh, they're like guys like Zion or whoever. But it really has a kind of negative effect on the earning potential of women in this sport because women's college basketball is very popular. Right, yeah. I mean, we we think about the ginger disparity in terms of like just the, the easy stuff to point out, right? That clearly the men have a better weight room facilities than the women do, but yet the, the rules as they're presently constructed, the, the inability of college athletes to profit off of their name, image, and likeness, it really does affect women in a way. And and David Hale at ESPN wrote about the, the Cavender twins at Fresno State. The two best players on the Fresno State women's basketball team, they have 2.7 million followers on TikTok. And in David's story, the CEO of a marketing firm says, the Cavender twins collectively have almost as big of an influence in terms of value as Trevor Lawrence. These are just two random basketball players on a fairly middling college basketball team, but they're being denied an opportunity to seize upon this very limited moment because once it's over, it doesn't come back again. They have a platform right now in college where they can really sort of sell themselves and the NCAA is denying them that. And just, yeah, just think about how that would also affect other women's athletes like gymnasts, volleyball players, tennis players, all these other ways that they can make money through camps, social media marketing, all these other things, and the NCAA is like standing in the way of that. And it's just, it's. I mean, for most women, college sports are a bigger and better marketing opportunity than any kind of professional career. Right, because because as Alex Kirshner pointed out in the piece for Slate, that women are, are likely to have fewer professional sports opportunities right. than men are. He, he found some data in that piece that the, a sports marketing publisher called Open Doors estimated that six of the 12 highest college athlete earners in 2020 would have been women if the NCAA permitted such deals. And I think the corollary to this as well is that you look like someone like you look at someone like Paige Beckers. She's stuck in the NCAA because unlike in men's college basketball, women can't go pro 
until they're at least 22 years old or have used up all of their college el- eligibility. And you can look at she someone like Russia. Paige Beckards. She could go to Russia, right? That's the, that's the option. But to stay in the States and play in the WNBA, that's it. She is stuck. Stefan, think about the money Sabrina Ionescu could have made over the last, you know, the last four years, right? Yeah. Like, she left out all that money on the table. The, the the former star player at Oregon, who was the number one pick in the WNBA draft, who's hurt this year. But go, go on. And Stephanie. might have yeah. won the and might have won the NCAA tournament last year, boosting her profile even more. And right as you mentioned, she goes and starts her WNBA career, and she gets hurt very quickly. She missed out on two or three years of the ability to market herself before her professional career. And Sedona Prince saw that very close up as a, a teammate, mm-hmm. right, or somebody that was on the the squad when Inescu was there. But the weights thing is incredibly powerful because of its symbolic value. It reminded me of the U.S. women's soccer equal pay lawsuit and how you can just kind of slice and dice the numbers so many different ways. And arguments can be made that are legitimate about the amount of revenue that comes in for whether it's men's soccer versus women's soccer or men's basketball versus women's basketball. But it's the stuff like the weights and in the women's soccer um, case, it's the stuff like the different treatment on in air travel where it's just like the money and the revenue stuff cannot explain the disparity. And you can't like slice the numbers or parse it in such a way to, to make an argument that it's anything other than sexism. And so... I think it was just very effective communication by Prince, and it was obviously very uh, successful in getting the message across that, you know, yes, the men's tournament generates like a billion dollars, the the TV contract, and the women's tournament generates a lot less. But the NCAA tries to take advantage of the fact that it has women's sports. It uses women in marketing efforts. It's a nonprofit. Um, It's supposed to promote athletes and sports kind of across the board equally. Um, those images show that that all is just, you know, a marketing lie and a myth, and uh, you can't argue with it. Right, and the parallel, I think, that's even better, Josh, with the women's soccer players is how they were forced to play on shitty surfaces. They were forced to play on turf, artificial turf, when the, the men's team was was had written into their deals that they would not play on it. And, you know, I'll never forget the women sort of lifting up the seams of the turf at a field that they were going to play on that they boycotted, that they said they wouldn't do it anymore. And it's the sort of undervaluing of the athletic ability and what our expectations are for what women deserve as athletes that was really striking here. And then the rest of it is also pretty dramatic, right? I mean, the swag bags of the men were were stuffed with stuff and the women's were pretty spare. There were no accommodations made for women coaches in the tournament to bring their children. Children were counted against the total traveling party for each school. So if you were a nursing mother or a parent of a toddler or a young child, you couldn't bring them with you to the tournament. One that I noticed watching the games, all of the men's courts have been resurfaced with the NCAA logo, second round, March Madness, removing all of the local images on the courts, the women's courts or whatever was there, North Texas Bobcats, Sunbelt. You know, so it's this, it's the little things that irked 
everybody in addition to the big things like different COVID tests for the men versus the women. The jigsaw puzzles in the swag bags for men had 500 pieces. The women's jigsaw puzzles had 150 pieces as if they're not as good <laughs> at making jigsaw puzzles either. Yeah, I didn't hear about that. Yeah. So yes, yeah, so I guess kind of getting back to the point about the name, image, and likeness, the argument against it and paying college athletes is that there would be a competitive disadvantage among institutions and it would make it more difficult for them to adhere to Title IX, that they want to preserve equity and equality among you know, men's and women's sports. Okay, fine, that's not a good argument, but I, I understand why they make it. But come to find out, they're not even trying. Like, like right, you know, they're not paying the athletes right now and they're not mandating equal treatment between men's and women's sports teams. If you're going to deny them the right to profit off of their name, image, and likeness, which is, I mean, just a very fundamental thing. Like you should, if anybody owns your name, image, and likeness, this should be you. But if, they, if you're going to deny these athletes the opportunity to profit off it, at least do what you say you're going to do and mandate fairness, mandate equality between men's and women's sports. But they haven't even done that. But the, the problem is that the NCAA, like we say that, and it's a dodge, the NCAA is a collection of institutions that have created a governing body so they don't have to bear the brunt of these unpopular decisions. So we say the NCAA, NCAA, but it's all the same schools. They're the ones that prop up this, uh, th- these decisions and the foundation of this like loathsome in- enterprise, right? Like the NCAA doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's backed by all these schools who want it exactly this way. Yeah, and it's pretty simple. I mean, I think you can say, oh, it's capitalism. More people watch the men's tournament and it generates... More money. Okay. Well, in that case, just let everybody make money. If it's if if capitalism is the is your explanation and your excuse, then you know, let those twins or let Paige Beckers sell ads on their Instagram. Fine, capitalism. If the argument is, oh, it should be everything should be equal, then make everything equal. It's like pretty easy. It, it's not it's not like a real complicated moral or practical problem here. And the thing that I think is so different is you could say social media, and I think that's a big part of it, but it's like Don Staley, the South Carolina coach, saying the NCAA season-long message about togetherness and equality was about convenience and a soundbite for the moment created after the murder of George Floyd. Um, You have Tara Vanderveer, the Stanford coach, saying, I feel betrayed by the NCAA. You have Sedona Prince saying what... Muffet McGraw, the former Notre Dame coach. What bothers me is that no one on the NCAA's leadership team even noticed... And, and what you have on the men's side is Rutgers guard Geo Baker saying, I'm not NCAA property, saying that on social media and spreading that movement. Isaiah Livers, the Michigan player, wearing an I'm not NCAA property shirt to a game. Players and coaches feel emboldened both by the kind of moment that we're in as a country, but also by the increasing public sentiment that they're in the right. And so these lawsuits are moving forward, and there's not going to be any kind of decline in the level of, of, of outrage and the level of kind of activism and, and outspokenness. As these tournaments go on, we're going to keep hearing about it, and there's nothing that the NCAA or, or these schools can do to stop it. Right, they can't do anything to stop it, but we've seen this with the lawsuits and the appeals and the and the the steps leading up to a hearing at the Supreme Court in a couple of weeks, is that the NCAA hires people to make the same tired arguments of amateurism that they've all, always made. 
but they also capitulate when they start to get scared. And what I think that these um, these 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 episodes during the tournaments have revealed is that look, this is going to be one more brick in the wall that is crumbling. You know, the NCAA is going to be pressured. And when again, you're right, Joel. The NCAA is. University presidents, athletic directors, and other executives, boosters, everybody that is part of the the network that forms college sports, they are going to start to get scared and they will start to make concessions. And they've up to now they've been minimal, but you know, this is starting to to feel again, sort of as it did last year. These are fitful steps, but they are real ones. Maybe one final point to make is about this is that. You know, when you when you play in the men's tournament, your conference gets a share of the cash that is generated by the TV deals. When you play in the women's tournament, you get nothing. The conferences and the schools get nothing that is part of the NCAA's contract with ESPN, not just for women's basketball, it's bundled with all these other championships. But if Connecticut or Stanford or Baylor, whoever wins that tournament, they aren't getting a dime for the the women's uh, accomplishment. And that's not to say that, you know, that the schools and the conferences should be the ones getting the money because the athletes should, but it is another revealing factor, um, a, re- a revealing example of how the NCAA treats the women vis-a-vis the men. The women are getting antigen tests as opposed to PCR tests for COVID. Although Mark Emmert's like, I'm not a scientist, but they're probably about the same, I think. Those PCR tests revealed positives for uh, VCU, which knocked them out of the men's tournament. I guess NCAA is probably happy that that wasn't the lead item in our uh, segment this week. We were just focused on how the basketball wasn't wasn't very uh, aesthetically pleasing. But if you told them before the tournament, and we've got a ways to go, they're like, one game won't be contested, the rest will go on. They've been like, yeah, we'll take that. That seems, that, that seems like a, a, a good bargain for us. They're very fortunate that it was Virginia Commonwealth and not like Virginia or like some high-profile program. Or because- Houston. Yeah, like some dominant powerhouse, because in that case, then we'd have a real issue. But nobody saw Virginia Commonwealth, but people that go to Virginia Commonwealth and presumably, like, they're the only people that are really disappointed by that. That's a former Final Four school, Joe. Come on. And we've got several rounds of tournament play to go. Yeah. Shaka Smart, much better at Virginia Commonwealth than at Texas. How about it? And yeah, coming after this break, we're going to be bringing in Jessica Luther, friend of the show, longtime friend of the show, journalist, co-host of the Burn It All Down podcast. And we're going to be talking about uh, Deshaun Watson and the many civil lawsuits he's facing right now. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. In the Sunday edition of the Houston Chronicle, Venerable NFL writer John McClain wrote a column headlined, All Signs Point to Watson Trade. McClain was referring, of course, to Houston Texans quarterback Deshaun Watson. Watson has reportedly been adamant that he no longer wants to play for the increasingly dysfunctional Texans franchise. And before last week, perhaps the biggest question about Watson's future was whether he'd be staying in Houston or going somewhere like Philly or San Francisco. But now, 
His future and those questions are a lot more complicated following several lawsuits from 10 women so far. We've had three more just this morning since we've been recording it, alleging sexual assault and inappropriate conduct by Watson. The women all have similar stories. Watson allegedly reached out to them over social media, made arrangements for a private massage, and then attempted to pressure them into sexual acts. The attorney who represents the women has promised to file more lawsuits. Meanwhile, Watson's attorney has called the lawsuits meritless. Today we have Jessica Luther, a journalist, co-host of the Burn It All Down podcast, and author of two books, the most recent titled How to Love Sports When They Don't Love You Back, which is co-written with Kavitha Davidson. Thanks for being here, Jessica, longtime friend of the show. Um, you've written extensively on the intersection of sports and violence off of the field, and I'm imagining that you see very familiar dynamics in this particular story. How should we be talking about this case? Yeah, I think it's complicated because these are all civil lawsuits, right? So we're getting all of our information through the lawsuits, and we don't know a ton about these women. It appears that, yeah, they're all, you know, massage therapists, work in spas, that kind of thing. Some of them are single mothers. So I do want to point out that they're probably in a very different uh, wealth bracket than Deshaun Watson. And so it's hard at this point. Their stories are incredibly similar. We we have to take that into account. That's really important. It appears to be a pattern, but we have to be careful in how we talk about this. Deshaun Watson is, I think, famously like known as a nice guy. And that's a really difficult narrative to counter when we have allegations like this. I mean, the other thing that struck me right off the bat is the characters involved here on the legal side. These are both prominent Mm. Texas lawyers with big egos who have been involved in in very public cases. Um, I don't know how we should factor that in here, but we are, you know, talking about attorneys at the sort of highest end of the celebrity legal spectrum and and the the desire that this is going to be very public I think is the is the is the point here not just because Deshaun Watson is a quarterback with a nine figure contract but because the lawyers in these cases are going to ensure that it is too yeah they're very Texan right Tony Busby and Rusty Harden and they're big deals in Houston Busby ran for mayor, I believe, uh, not that long ago. And yeah, he's a total character. And he's a lawyer for all of these women. And it's hard because yeah, they are personalities. And what does that mean? And how do we factor that in? And I think I would just keep pointing people to the fact that there's the same story over and over again, we're talking about a possibility of 22 women. Uh, You know, I don't know how he found them or they found him and how they found each other. I feel like that's a part of the story that we're all you know, maybe we'll never know, but it would be interesting to find out. It's maybe they just knew his name. And so they called this guy up because he was in the news, right? Uh, And there's all these conspiracies that uh, the McNair family that own the Texans are friends with Tony Busby, and he's doing this to devalue Deshaun Watson. uh, Because as Joel talked about, there is talk of trading him and he wants to leave and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, I think most likely, they probably just had heard of him before and called him up, and he was willing, he was a blowhard and willing to take this on. Well, that's the thing that we have to do here, isn't it, Jessica? We have to divorce Deshaun Watson, quarterback who's had a bad relations with his team for the last X months versus allegations that could prove very serious. Yeah, absolutely. I think one thing that we have to think a lot about here is that there are people who are more willing to believe in some kind of gigantic conspiracy theory that, like, All of these women are lying, that this lawyer is corrupt, that he has some kind of relationship with these NFL owners, and that all of this is just to devalue 
this one player versus the idea that someone that we think of as a good guy could have possibly harmed some women, which we know from all the stats that that the latter is much more likely. We know from stats and from high profile cases of people who are quote unquote good guys who've been found to actually not be good guys. And I think the important thing here as um, journalists or as consumers of the news is to just be very honest with ourselves and with each other about the limits of our knowledge at this point. Mm -hmm. And all we can say, I think, about Deshaun Watson is that a very, very powerful image of goodness has been created over a period of years. And we just don't People with bad reputations or people with good reputations, we don't know these people. Like, we don't know what they're like outside of games and commercials and interviews. But like what you were saying, Jessica, that um, especially in a situation where these are civil suits, especially in a situation where this is going to kind of play out in the media, that is the thing that's kind of towering over all of this and the thing that those of us who are sports fans, that's the only thing we know going in is like what we think we know about who Deshaun Watson is. And I'll say like, I felt, man, I was bummed. Like when the news broke and I thought, oh man, you know, he's supposed to be a good guy. But at the same time, good guys use the fact that they're seen as good guys for all kinds of cover, right? Uh, And this is one way that that happens, but we have to keep that in our heads. And I, and I want to just acknowledge that, that you're doing work. You're working against that narrative all the time. So it will feel weird and uncomfortable and there'll be attention for you the entire time. There's one for me and I'm quote unquote an expert on this and I see this all the time and I know how this works. So that's just part of this is living in the gray and we really, really hate that space, especially around this kind of violence. Yeah. And I mean, what does good guy actually mean in the context of any of this, right? Because again, like you said, we don't know anything about these guys, but you could theoretically be a good guy. But I think one thing that we all know, or we should know by this age, is that like we don't know what any one man is capable of when they're in a room alone with a vulnerable woman, right? Like, I mean, that doesn't, you know what I mean? Like, that, that doesn't mean that. <laughs> that he's not a good guy and he's just not good in charity. He's not a good leader in the community or whatever. But like on the whole, good guy really doesn't mean anything when it comes to cases like this, right? Right. Well, we put so much emphasis on like the choices that women in these cases make and we are focused so intensely on that. And so this feeds into all of this. Like if if he, we should be able to tell that he's a bad guy, right? And women should then avoid those bad guys. And so we put a lot of stock in like, who is good, right? And so the idea that he's nice, we don't have all these stories of what he's like, like he's not mean to his teammates, he doesn't get in fights on the field. Like we have these ideas that those are the people we would expect to harm. And in fact, that's just not true. Lots of lots of people harm people that they know, uh, and we know nothing about it. And this is especially true with men and women, right? So you're totally right. Like, what does it mean that he's even good or nice? That's a manufactured image as much as anything else. What can we, what do we know at this point, Jessica, about why these cases are being filed in civil court and whether the police have taken any um uh, role in trying to investigate them. We do know that the NFL is investigating, but uh, all I've read is that that the lawyer Busby said that he's turned stuff over to the police and had a conversation with someone in the Houston Police Department, but the police department has denied that. 
Well, I think my understanding is that Busby basically said a friend in the department called him up, right? That it wasn't a formal kind of filing of a police report. And yeah, the Houston PD has said that there's no open criminal investigation against Watson for any of this stuff. And I don't even know what the jurisdiction is for all these cases, because some of them, of course, are in Houston, but it sounds like, I, I did they all happen in Houston? I guess I don't really even uh, understand the jurisdiction of it, but it's not necessarily, there's nothing strange about them filing in civil versus going with criminal. There's, you know, endless stories of women reporting gendered violence to law enforcement and and it going sideways immediately. Uh, So it's not uncommon to just circumvent that altogether. Uh, And so, you know, one of the things that, I mean, Deshaun Watson's attorney hasn't said too much, but one thing that I think there was a statement that was in Watson's name, and he said that uh, Tony Busby, the lawyer for the women, had brought you know, a six-figure settlement number to him before going public with any of this. And people find that, you know, sketchy, like that this is to be, they're just in it for the money, which is so funny because all the discussion before about Watson was all about money. uh, And that seems normal and fine to us. But yeah, even that, the idea that like, they would bring it before they would go public with a settlement is not an uncommon thing that civil lawyers do in these kinds of cases. Uh, And so everything is very normal in that sense. And we'll see if there's a criminal case here. Maybe it doesn't qualify. Maybe the women didn't feel like that made sense to them. Maybe they have interacted with the police before and found it wanting and didn't want to get into it again. Uh, There's all kinds of reasons that people don't go in that direction. And so that to me is not it's like a certain kind of red flag or anything. So we're going to end up with at least the possibility of three kind of parallel, some overlapping, some not overlapping sort of justice slash justice-like situations here with civil, potential criminal, and then the NFL zone, bizarro justice system. And how all of those play out will affect perception, but also Deshaun Watson's future as a football player. And I'm curious what your thoughts are about the NFL aspect of this and Lisa Friel being kind of charged with doing these sorts of investigations for the league post Ray Rice. And the cynical take on that is like they brought in somebody after that high profile case to make it seem like they're doing something. And I guess the less cynical version would be that the NFL understands, I don't know if, like, cares about, but sure, cares about workplace conduct, workplace misconduct issues. And so it makes sense for them to have somebody who's, like, a three-decade-long prominent sex crimes prosecutor in there to, like, be looking looking at that stuff. So kind of how do you look at it and look at her role? Yeah, well, this is an interesting case because it's tied directly to him as a player, it seems like, that uh, I think in one lawsuit that there might have been a Texans trainer who introduced Watson to one of these women. I assume, like, I I haven't read all of the lawsuits, so I don't know exactly what the messages were that he sent, but I assume it had something to do with him being a player, right, and that he needed uh, this work because he's an NFL player, and so that's part of what's going on here. You know, I'm cynical about the league, so I'm not, you know, I think a lot of it is PR, and as of Friday, the Houston Chronicle is reporting that, I wrote it down, that there were six teams still really interested in trading for Watson and that the, you know, the Texans don't want to let him go. So that's seven teams that are still really interested. And there is a cynical part of me that thinks that it will play out the way that is most useful to the league 
Peter King said in his column, one former NFL GM told me Sunday he thinks a smart GM would check in regularly to tell Houston GM Nick Casario of his interest, regardless of how dire it looks now. Yeah, and I just kind of wonder how seriously everyone will take this. I think we're having a conversation right now about massage workers and sort of all of the things that we think about them that are unfair uh, and are gendered and are going to work against these women. And I don't know how seriously we as a society will take all of these cases. I mean, we're talking potentially 22 women, like the number that we already have, which is 10, is, and that is such a big number. I can't, like, you can't stress that enough. Like, you don't get those kind of numbers in these cases. But I don't know, there's a part of me that feels like he's too good of a football player. And the NFL will do what it needs to to manage PR. And they might use Freel and her investigation to do that. And I don't know if I have a good read on like, how legit her investigations are. There's all kinds of trouble. Diana Moskovitz has been covering this super well over the last few years. So I don't I don't know what we should take away uh, from the league side of this. I think being skeptical of anything the league does is the right way to handle it. I mean, I take all your points, um, Jessica, and I think you're right to be cynical. And, and as far as how seriously it'll be taken, I just, it's hard for me to get off that number, Joel. Like if it, it's already a 10. It doesn't need to be more than that for it to be a pattern. But if it just keeps going up, I don't know how the NFL or anybody can ignore that number and just be like, eh, that, that doesn't seem like that big a deal. Well, isn't like, and maybe you all can help me with this, like innocent until proven guilty or the presumption of innocence is a useful legal concept, but that doesn't mean that you have to abdicate thinking on your own, right? And like noticing patterns, right? So, I mean, obviously nobody wants to be reckless. Nobody wants to make any claims that would be false or damaging in any sort of way to Deshaun Watson. But I think all of us can sort of look at the evidence that's sort of piling up here and be like, this looks pretty bad. You know, <laughs> like, like it doesn't seem like there's a good, it doesn't seem like there's a good explanation for why there's so many women that are doing this, right? Just kidding. I mean, also, I mean, there's just, it's, and I've had I'm I'm in Houston right now, and like I've, I'm having all these conversations with people, and like the idea that women like make bank on civil lawsuits, and that it's like some sort of you know gold mine for for women that want to take advantage of men is just totally overblown here. Yeah, it's absolutely overblown, and the scrutiny that these women are going to get as of now, they're all anonymous, but we know how all of these things work, and that's a huge risk. Like we talked about right at the beginning, like these are not, I assume incredibly wealthy people that can, you know, risk their job and their reputation uh, on a case like this. And so, you know, it makes sense to me that it. we don't know why I guess it came out right now, but it makes sense because he's in the news. And this is someone who triggers you seeing them a lot. This will kind of be the motivation for coming forward. You hear that someone else has come forward, this sort of wave of accusations of such a normal pattern here. And yeah, they're not like, they might, they might, make some money off of this. Uh, But I don't know, it sounds like it's impacting their life in lots of different ways. So it would make sense that they need financial support after this has happened to them based on what they say occurred. So I don't, yeah, it's, it's complicated. To your point about innocent uh, until proven guilty, that's absolutely a criminal standard. And it makes sense there because we're talking about removing someone's civil rights and imprisoning them. Uh, So we should 
focus like that. But all the time in our regular lives, we're not operating that way in the way that, you know, the relationships that we have with other people and how we're interacting with them. We're not like, well, until they're guilty in court, I can't, I have to maintain the exact same relationship that I've always had with this person. Like that wouldn't make any sense. And so, yeah, it doesn't really apply here in this case when we're trying to figure out how we want to think about what's gone on with Deshaun Watson. All right, I think that we'll, we'll put a button on it here and I'm sure we'll revisit it. And when we do, we may or may not have Jessica, but uh, <laughs> but we're glad we had her here today. Uh, Jessica, journalist, co-host of the Burn It All Down podcast, author, um, thank you so much for spending time with us here today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Now it is time for After Balls. Uh, we alluded in our NCAA conversation to Oral Roberts University and mentioned their big upsets. We did not get into Oral Roberts, the university, and what it stands for, um, sexual misconduct policy. We pledge not to engage in or attempt to engage in any illicit or unscriptural, unscriptural sexual acts, which includes any homosexual activity and sexual intercourse with one who is not a spouse, et cetera, et cetera. Oral Roberts was, uh, himself was a crazy televangelist one time in the 1980s. He uh, told viewers that he would die unless he raised $4.5 million more for medical missionary scholarships. The school has a prayer tower, which you should Google and look at, and those giant hands on campus, big sculpture. But here's our, our sports connection has to do with Oral Roberts and the recruitment of Moses Malone, the basketball player, in 1974 when Malone was in high school. Noticed this on Twitter over the weekend. Uh, Bomani Jones mentioned uh, Oral Roberts and, and, uh, and, a, and, a, and a reader mentioned this story about Moses Malone. And this is a piece from the New York Times. I'll just read the paragraph about Malone's recruitment. After all, what is a teenager to think when Oral Roberts, the evangelical faith healer and president of the Tulsa College bearing his name, went to see Moses' mother? And when Roberts found out she was suffering from an ulcer, he told her he would heal her ulcer if young Malone played basketball for Oral Roberts U. This is like uh, Donald Trump saying that he would Solve, you know, he would solve ISIS for us. And, but if he didn't get elected president, he wouldn't do it. But, you know, if he did, he would do it. But you see how that worked out. Moses Malone did not go to Oral Roberts University. <laughs> he turned pro. No word on whether uh, Oral Roberts, the televangelist, was still willing to heal her ulcer, even though he didn't commit to them. Josh, what's your Moses Malone? So we've all got our favorite things about March Madness, the habits, the traditions, the idioms. Let me set the scene for you guys for one of mine, uh, Syracuse and Buddy Bayheim, 74, West Virginia, 68, Bob Huggins did not contribute a son to the game. Um, 21 seconds to go, West Virginia's inbounding the ball, Jim Nance, and crucially, 
Bill Raftery are on the call. Gets him ball. Bill, two-possession game. And go to the rim, too, for that reason. You don't need a three. You miss the three, the game's over. There you go. Sherman, they give it to him. They give him the open lane at the 13.9 mark. Ah, uh, yes. You don't need a three. And really, why would you need a three? It's not like you're losing by a lot of points and uh, there's very little time left. And it's not like three is worth more than two. They're <laughs> worth the same amount, three and two. In the end, West Virginia lost by three. three. They did l- very literally need a three. Oh, well, who could have guessed? ESPN's <laughs> Jeff Borzello tweeted the following on Sunday, crediting the idea to his colleague, John Gassaway. Working assumption. If the announcer says you don't need a three here, you need a three. It's a, actually a very accurate contrary indicator. Fair. I also found a blog post from the SB Nation site Banners on the Parkway, which is devoted to Xavier University basketball. The peg for that story was an NCAA tournament game when, once again, our man, Bill Raftery, told the trailing team, this time Georgia, that they definitely did not need a three-pointer. Georgia was trailing by six with 35 seconds to go. (laughs) They did what Raftery told them. They made a couple of two-pointers, and they ended up losing by seven. Why... Would you not want to shoot a three? Let's. It's always a good idea to think of the best argument for your opponent in an intellectual debate. So one argument might be the teams are defending the three-point line, making it hard to score from there, whereas they're allowing you to score from inside, making it easy. Why not take the easy two rather than the difficult three? Well, the reason they're defending the three-point line is because you need to score three points. <laughs> two sports cliches are in direct competition here. Take what the defense gives you, and you're open for a reason. In the final seconds of the game, the defense is giving you a present you do not want to open. (laughs) You need a three here. Let's talk about the the Raftery of it specifically. I enjoy Bill Raftery. Joel, you you like Bill Raftery. Yeah, I don't have a problem with Bill Raftery. You don't have a problem with Bill Raftery. (laughs) Stefan, do you have a problem with Bill Raftery? What's your problem problem with Bill Raftery? I have no problem with Bill Raftery. (laughs) All right. I respect my elders, and so I will tell you with great reverence that Bill Raftery is 77 years old. He was born in 1943. The college three-point line is introduced in 1986. And so uh, we have nine years to go. Um, I guess that'll be the 2030 tournament when Bill Raftery will have lived um, as much of his time on Earth with a three-point line (laughs) as without a three-point line. But we're not there yet. Is what also, yeah. Bill Raftery uh, came into broadcasting from the coaching ranks. He coached from 1963 to 1981 at Fairleigh Dickinson and Seton Hall. And I just learned this, actually. I'm looking at his coaching record today. His team's never made the NCAA tournament. So when you are taking the advice of Bill Raftery, you are heeding a man who has lived most of his life without a three-point line and has never coached in the NCAA tournament. So just keep that in mind. And if I ever get the opportunity to call any basketball game at any level, you will hear the following from me. You need a three. You need a three here. You need a three now. Shoot the damn three. It all comes back to football for me, but is this like when uh, an announcer says, you don't need to go for two here. Don't go for don't 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 go for two too early. You gotta you know wait until la- some later point in the game when theoretically you might be in position to score a touchdown again and go for two. So it's just kind of the it's same totally thing, the I same think. thing. I mean, the one thing I didn't get into, which I think you heard in the clip, is the logical 
fallacy of if you don't make the three, then the game is over. It's the same concept with with going for two. Oh, if you go for it and don't get it, then the game is over. And the the way that that was kind of expressed, which really stuck with me, is that you d- you don't want to win if you're going to potentially look bad or look foolish mm. in the process. You want to prolong the right. amount of you, you want to make the game longer and like prolong the amount of time you could potentially win even if it ultimately decreases your chance of winning. Yeah, it it does make you know I feel like whenever they're extending a game in college basketball, it just it all serves to make the college basketball coach look smarter, right? Like they go back over to the sideline, they're on the board, they get to they're draw doing up something. A play. Yeah, right. Like they get to have their hands all over the game if you stretch it out a little bit instead of letting their guy fire up a three. Yeah, I mean, I would wager, I would wager that if you go if you shoot the three, you might actually lose more of. Well, I don't know if I actually believe that. You'll probably when you do lose, you'll lose by more. Mm-hmm. than if you go for the two. But I think you'll probably win a higher percentage of the time, although it's still you probably won't. I'm not sure that's often, even but. true though, because if you miss the if you if you make the two, you're gonna foul immediately. That's gonna put the other team on the line. They're gonna score more points. If you shoot and miss the three, maybe get a rebound, shoot another three and miss, you're gonna be stuck on the same score line. So who knows? In Raftery's case, though you have to do you do have to weigh his bad advice with the fact that he says onions, right? He's great. I love Bill Raftery. I hope that I hope that much is clear. Can we, can we real quick, because while you guys were talking about this, I thought about Dick Vitale and his coaching record. Do you know Dick Vitale only coached in the NCAA tournament once, too? Just once. He was in 1976, 1977, University of Detroit. He went 26-3. and three. Parlayed that into a job with the Detroit Pistons, where that lasted a year, a season and 12 games. And then he moved into broadcasting and became the face and voice of college basketball for so long. Right alongside Bill Raftery. We we salute them for their long and, and storied careers of giving people bad advice. <laughs> and, and, and their decisions to change careers, which seemed like they worked it worked out pretty well for both of them. Yeah. That is our show for today. Our producer this week is Margaret Kelly. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. And please subscribe to the show and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For Joel Anderson, Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Oh, wait, wait, Josh. Before you go, Stephen, Margaret, should we just say happy birthday to Josh? We missed it last week. It was irresponsible of us. It and was. We should, we should say something before we close out here. All right. Wow, Let's, that was like, I was one second away yeah. from, like a from buzzer getting beater. to remember yeah, right. I just yeah. got a buzzer in. beater. Just got in. <laughs> happy birthday to our leader, Josh. All right. Are we going to sing it or not? We just no, please. No, we're not going to sing it. That would be, he would, right. would really hate that. All right. Remember Zalmo Beatty. And thanks for listening. Something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., 
on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.